Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. Um, as always, it's an honor to be here with you this morning, and it's just great to see all your smiling faces. I, uh, I appreciate your prayers for me as I've been preparing for this uh, this morning, and and uh, for those of you who've been praying for me this week, thank you so much. Um, I want to mention one thing. This is normally wouldn't do this, but uh, we do have visitors. My in I say hello to them if you get a chance. Uh, uh, mention them because they were very instrumental in in sharing the gospel with me and, and actually bringing me to the faith. I I tell this story, and I know they they forget about this, but when I was a uh, I'll describe myself. I was just kind of a little punk kid. I remember, and I would uh, uh, the church that they attended was actually right up the street from where I lived. And I was probably outside, you know, we were with some of our little friends riding bicycles and stuff. And we we entered into the the church parking lot one day when they're doing something that I don't remember the exact occasion. But Shelley's mother was outside and she invited me in and she said we have cookies or something like that and of course hey you know I'm not going to turn that down so so you or I went in there and and the rest is history as they say of course had she known that I was going to marry her daughter she probably would have rethought that decision but 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 so thankful for them and and certainly the uh uh part they played in helping share the gospel with me, but also just the great example they have set in, in the way they have lived. So, so again, make it a point to meet with them if you get a chance. Um, as you know, we are blessed to sit under the teachings of one of the best Bible expositors anywhere, and that by itself makes standing in this pulpit a very humbling undertaking. But more than that, I have been tasked with the ever-important uh, uh, responsibility of rightly dividing and communicating the truth of God's Word during our time of worship. And it is my prayer this morning, and, and I hope you will join me in this prayer, that despite my shortcomings, and, and they are many, that 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 God's word will go forth with boldness and clarity and in such a way that his church will be edified and that he will be exalted. This morning, I am going to examine, or at least begin examining, what the church often refers to as the doctrines of grace. We are going to explore issues related to Reformed theology and Calvinism, especially as it pertains to the, the doctrine of salvation. We are going to discuss uh, topics such as original sin, elections, and uh, election, and other light topics like that. Now, as I speak to you this morning, I know that the message I have prepared is going to be received differently by different people. For many of you, my message will serve to reinforce and further uh, clarify those truths that you have come to know and love. Like me, many of you were drawn to be part of this church body, at least in part, because of these truths. And I hope today's message will serve to remind you why these truths are so important. I hope it will further inform 
uh, inform you and, and, and convict your hearts and ultimately be a means through which you are drawn closer to the Lord. For others within the sound of my voice, and, and perhaps even some of you here this morning, these truths are going to be difficult to hear. If you have never been exposed to the doctrines of grace in any meaningful way, it may be like, uh, they say, drinking from the fire hydrant. For some, the doctrines of grace are just hard to accept. They challenge our conventional thinking. They challenge us to acknowledge that there are biblical, biblical paradoxes. They challenge common preconceptions we may have about uh, who God is and how he should operate. And so for some, these truths are just hard to fully embrace. And some are not only going to disagree, but, but some may even take exception to these truths. As one who has often been on the receiving end of some uh, extremely venomous rants from, from opponents of Reformed theology, I can tell you that in some circles, the doctrines of grace are absolutely hated. To some, they paint a picture of a God who is unfair or even evil. I often hear people say things like, the God of Calvinism, he's a monster. Have you ever heard that? These people cannot even imagine a God who sovereignly exercises his will in an absolute way, especially when it comes to who he does and does not save. Finally, for some, the doctrines of grace just may not seem all that important. In my experience, many professing Christians are just uninterested in learning about these truths. They see them as an unnecessary distraction or, as wor- or at worst, uh, as being a hindrance to the gospel. On several occasions, I've had individuals... Uh, uh, people who I know and respect, people who I know love the Lord. Uh, I've had these people say something to me like, you know, even if these things are true, why bring them up? Can't you see they are divisive? Can't you see that, that they prevent you from winning souls to Christ? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and anything in their thinking that contradicts or perhaps veers away from what they think that verse is saying, well, it is at best something to be marginalized. Well, I will address some of these things in due time as we unpack everything, um, actually over these next two Sundays. But whatever your thoughts may be about Calvinism or Reformed theology, as I hope you all see this morning, The doctrines of grace, if anything, are rooted in Scripture. They are rooted in Scripture. That's why, from my perspective, they are so compelling. You know, it's funny. Some people see the name Calvinist, and they seem to think that we are his followers. They seem to think that we have canonized his writings. Or, or that we have canonized his thinking. 
heard many people over the years say something to the effect that you follow Calvin, I'll follow Christ. Well, that might make for a catchy bumper sticker, but it's really meaningless and it's really a hypocritical statement because uh, certainly Calvin and, and many other Reformed thinkers have influenced the way we think. There's no doubt about that. But it's not as if the people who are not Calvinist who say these things have no influences of their own, right? In all likelihood, by the standards they themselves have set, the people saying that we are followers of Calvin are themselves followers of people who do not like Calvin. You see what I'm saying here? In fact, I know this to be true because they often always use the same straw man arguments. You know, it's like, getting your news from one source, but that source is wrong and you keep repeating it. And so I know these people are being influenced by someone other than Scripture. So here's the truth. We all have influences in our lives and we all view biblical truths from certain presuppositions. We all do. Our challenge as followers of Christ is to allow those presuppositions to be shaped and changed by the word of God. And that is precisely why we admire people like Calvin and many others like him. One of the most central tenets of Reformed theology and and the doctrines of grace in particular is that we let scriptures speak for themselves even when they say things that are difficult to reconcile or accept. Now, You know, I did not embrace the doctrines of grace early in my Christian life. I went to a church where they believed in something that was called a middle theology. I had learned in a special class, which my pastor at that time taught, that the denomination I was part of uh, separated from another church because we could not accept the teachings on predestination and election. I was taught that this was the second great awakening and that it was a success because it made the gospel to all men a central focus and through it countless people were saved. But I didn't really understand at that time and again, I'm going to impose on them their own standards is that like, Many churches in these parts here in Tennessee, my old denomination was a follower of Charles Finney and the revivalist movement. Again, I didn't notice it at the time, but my whole understanding of Reformed theology was based on our church's position. I thought the doctrines of grace, at least as I understood them at the time, were bad simply because they were among the primary points of contention and my church's decision to separate itself from another denomination. I had been led to believe that the doctrines of grace portrayed God in a negative light. Now, here's the ironic thing. I had never once heard the doctrines of grace properly addressed from Scripture. Never. And I say that to make this point. Do you know when I began to embrace the doctrines of grace? Do you know when I began to embrace them? 
when I quit imposing my own standards on who I thought God should be, and when I started listening to what God tells us about himself through his word, that's when I began to embrace the doctrines of grace. It's really that simple. Without even realizing it, I was trying to help God define himself. Well, guess what? He didn't need my help. So what are the doctrines of grace? Well, if there's one passage I know that provides what I think is a great summary statement of those truths we associate with the doctrines of grace, there's a text where the doctrines of grace are perhaps best illustrated or summed up in a phrase. It would have to be the first part of Psalm 3.8, which is why I've chosen this text as, uh, I would say, kind of our launching point this morning. In this text, David proclaims, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now the context in which these words are written comes from 2 Samuel 15 and following, where we read about how David's son Absalom conspired against his father in an attempt to overthrow David's reign as king. Through his scheming and deception, Absalom was able to win over the people of Israel build an army, and mount a serious threat against his father and king. The situation became so bad for David that he had to flee Jerusalem. And it was in that context that David proclaims these precious words from Psalm 3.8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, there's really nothing complex about David's statement. He is in the midst of a terrible trial at the hands of his own son. Imagine that. But he knows that his deliverance from this trial rests not in the hands of his enemies, nor even in his own hands, but in the hands of who? God. This proclamation by David reveals his utter dependence on God. It also reveals his confidence that God will deliver him. You know, you think about David's trials going all the way back to Goliath. It is never David's strength that brings uh, confidence. It is never David's strength that brings victory. What is it? It's the power of God alone. When David stood before the giant, he proclaimed in 1 Samuel 17, 45, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of of the Lord Almighty. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And it is with that same faith in God that David now confronts this current crisis. When David proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord, he is proclaiming that his deliverance rests in the power and yes, the sovereign will and purposes of the Most High. And now, Here's the thing, this statement by David is not just applicable to David's situation. The truth is, David's confidence rests in the fact that this is how, God's, this is how God operates. Uh, to quote from the uh, MacArthur Study Bible, David's words here speak about a broad-sweeping, all-inclusive deliverance, whether in the temporal or eternal realm. In other words... Whether it is deliverance, uh, the deliverance of David 
from his enemies or deliverance of the sinner from the power and consequences of sin, salvation belongs to who? The Lord. And to him alone. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and, and I like that, uh, Mike, you actually referred to this in your prayer this morning. The Apostle Paul essentially echoes the truth of David's sentiments. But of course, he's talking about eternal salvation here. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's interesting, a lot of times people read these verses as saying something to the effect that salvation is a gift given to those who are faithful. Or or to put it another way, God graciously offers the gift that we humbly accept through our own faith. And salvation is a result. They see it as kind of a synergistic work. God does his part and we do our little part. But is that what the text is saying? When you study this verse, and, and, and Greek scholars who are way smarter than I am, when they comment on this verse, they point to the fact that the grammatical structure of the text clearly indicates that the faith spoken of here is itself a gift. All right? The faith spoken of here is a gift. And of course... This makes sense given the, uh, the point that Paul's statement is to point out that we bring nothing to salvation. Saying salvation isn't some synergistic work in which God does his part and we do ours. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't express faith. And we'll talk about that down the road. But the very faith we do express is a gift given to us by God. When we put our trust in God, we do so because God makes it possible. He, not just possible, but he makes it certain. The whole of salvation from beginning to end is a work of God's grace alone. And that is what the apostle is driving home in this text. In order for salvation to be all of grace, it must by definition be free from works or any source of merit from those to whom this grace is given. As my father-in-law taught me a long time ago when I was just a little kid, grace is an unmerited gift, right? Paul then adds to this at the end of verse 9 a very important phrase. Salvation is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why do you think he throws that in? What is the concern here? It's simple. The glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. And when it comes to salvation, there is no room for man to glory in himself. I love what James Montgomery Boyce writes about this. And uh, listen to this, this is so good. He says, having a high view of God means something more than giving glory to God. 
It means giving glory to God alone. This is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. While the former declares that God alone saves sinners, the latter gives the impression that God enables sinners to have some part in saving themselves. He goes on to say, Although Arminianism is willing to give God the glory, when it comes to salvation, it is unwilling to give him all the glory. It divides the glory between heaven and earth. For what ultimately makes the difference between being saved and being lost is man's ability to choose God, then to just that extent God is robbed of his glory. Yet God himself has said, I will not yield my glory to another. And by the way, that passage comes from Isaiah 48, 11. Earlier I mentioned how people have often asked me, why bring these things up? Well, there are many reasons that we teach these truths, but none are more important than this. We are either going to embrace a view of divine grace that gives, that gives God all the glory, or we are going to embrace a view that diminishes that glory and assumes some of it for ourselves, however slight and unwittingly it might be. You see that? Does that make sense? The doctrines of grace are sometimes set forth by the acronym TULIP, which is sometimes labeled as the five points of Calvinism. By the way, when you hear that TULIP and you hear five points of Calvinism, keep in mind that when we're talking about Calvinism, we're not just talking about Tulip, we're not just talking about the doctrines of salvation. Reformed theology is much, much broader than that. Um, this just happens to be the point of contention, and so it's the, 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 the thing that gets most, of people's, or most people's attention. So when we see the acronym TULIP, or, or as we call it, the five points of Calvinism, or the doctrines of grace, uh, keep that in mind. And of course, this acronym stirs up controversy. Some people think these points were invented or at least framed as they are by John Calvin. But besides from the influence he had in shedding light on some of the truths to which this acronym points, he had nothing to do with the actual, actual acronym itself. The acronym TULIP is actually a product of the Synod of Dort, which came together some 50 plus years after Calvin's death to help frame and defend the doctrines of grace against the influence of Arminianism. Uh, Just to give you a little history here, Jacob Arminius was at one point in his life a strict Calvinist. Did, Did anyone know that? He was a strict Calvinist. He set out to write against a theologian who was at the time questioning some of the doctrines within Calvinism. And Arminius struggled to answer some of those questions. And so, over a period of time, he eventually shifted his beliefs to what would uh, later be labeled as Arminianism. Now, Arminius died in 1609, but by this time he had a very large following in the Netherlands. And in 1610, some uh, some of those followers came together and produced a document known as the Remonstrance. 
which sets forth certain Armenian doctrines concerning uh, election and salvation. And the remonstrance can be summed up briefly in five points. And again, there's a lot more to them, but just summing them up briefly. First, they would say that Christ died for all men. They would say God's election of individuals is based on his foreknowledge of how they will respond to the gospel. That faith is a gift, but the grace by which faith is secured is resistible and contingent on the individual's response. And then finally, they would say that perseverance is uh, uh, unclear. Uh, they just didn't know. And of course, as time have, ha- has gone on, a lot of Armenians today, they've developed various views on this. You can lose your salvation, you know, or if you turn away from the faith once, you can't come back. I, it gets really complex, but you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> The primary message of the remonstrance was to make the point that God does not elect certain individuals for salvation. Rather, he makes salvation possible for all individuals. Now, when you think about the significance of what the Armenians were doing in producing this document, it's important. I want Think about this. It's important to really wrap your mind around the fact that this issue was central to the Reformation central. Roman Catholicism taught a synergistic form of salvation in which man works in cooperation with divine grace. But as he was preparing for his lectures uh, in Romans, Martin Luther discovered a problem with Rome's synergistic doctrine. He discovered, first of all, that righteousness was not a thing to be earned, but a gift imputed to us through faith. He further discovered that it is initiated and carried out by the sovereign will of God. Luther argued that even our cooperation, if it comes from a source other than God, is a work because it is something man ultimately contributes to his own salvation. In his view, anything man brings to the process of salvation cheapens the grace of God. And whether we refer to it as Calvinism, Augustinianism, Reformed theology, or whatever, this was the prevailing soteriological position of the early Protestant church. And so when the Armenians published the remonstrance, the Reformed church saw this as a return to Rome and as an undermining of the very foundation on which the gospel itself was built. And it was that concern, or with that concern in mind, that Reformed uh, Reformed theologians from throughout Europe came together for the purposes of framing the biblical response to the issues raised by the remonstrants. And out of this synod came the famous, or infamous to some, acronym TULIP, and the five counterpoints to, uh, that help us distinguish and clarify the, the doctrines of grace. They are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, it's important that we not get caught up in the semantics here. I know many people, even in the Reformed Church, feel that these terms 
fail to fully or accurately capture the uh, the essence of the truths for which they stand. I know that pastors and theologians, people like John Piper, Steve Lawson, and others, people who would agree wholeheartedly with the doctrines of grace, would agree wholeheartedly with the truths we're going to look at. Uh, they have replaced the original terms with new terms that they think better capture the principal truths of the five points. And that's fine. But let's remember, these are just semantics. What's important here is that we rightly understand those biblical principles that help define the doctrines of grace and help us that or help us to see that salvation truly does belong to the Lord. So today we are going to look at total depravity and then next week God willing we will explore the other four points. So let's look at total depravity. Now let me say at the outset that I think this point is vital to rightly understanding the gospel and grace itself. The more, we come, or the more we come to understand the depths of our depravity, the more important and precious the grace of God and the gospel become. On the other hand, if we miss the mark here, we are also going to miss the mark when it comes to rightly understanding rightly applying grace. To understand total depravity, we must understand what Scripture teaches us about original sin. Original sin, and we've all heard the term, it's not merely a reference to the first sin. You you think of original sin, you think, oh yeah, it's the first time man sinned. It makes sense. But really what it refers to is Not just the original sin, but the consequences of that sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the entire human race fell. And our nature as human beings since the fall has been influenced by the power of evil. David talks about this in Psalm 51.5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. He is not saying that it was sinful for his mother to have born children. Nor is he saying that he had done something evil by being born. David is acknowledging the human condition of fallenness. Original sin has to do with the fallen nature of mankind. Psalm 58.3 also speaks to the fallen nature of the human race. It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. How many of you had to teach your children to misbehave and sin? Right? None of us, right? It's funny how we just naturally pick that up. Why do you think that is? In his letter to the church of Rome, Paul addresses the contrast between the effects of Adam's sin and the righteousness of Christ. He says... Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, he's making it pretty clear here, we inherit Adam's fallenness. When Adam sinned, all of mankind sinned in Adam. Paul goes on later, beginning in verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one... 
Judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. What do these verses ultimately, or what these verses ultimately teach us? And I know many of you have heard this before. I think this quote may have originated with Walter, Walter Chantry. I'm not sure, but many have said it since. We are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because why? Because why? Because we are sinners. We all come into this world with a serious spiritual problem. And what is that problem? We are totally depraved. <clears throat> now, just to be clear, total depravity does not mean that every human being is as bad or he, as he or she could be. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that men are totally devoid of decent qualities. Think about it. Even the worst of sinners, even the most vile and evil people in world history have some qualities that are admirable. I heard a man one time joke, he said, even Hitler loved his mother, right? I don't know that, but it's, you, get, you get the idea. And of course, we can certainly think of ways in which some of these men could have been worse. So total depravity doesn't mean we are as bad as we could be. But it does mean this, and, and this is important. It does mean that the effect or the, the fall affects the total person. Let me say that again. The fall affects the total person. From our thinking to our physical presence to our morals and everything in between, there is no part of our natural being that is unstained by sin. Spurgeon put it like this. He says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. And this depravity is not merely a sickness. We come into this world, as Paul points out in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sin. And as Paul goes on to say later in Ephesians uh, 2, 3, we are by nature children of wrath. We come into this world dead in trespasses and sin, and because of this, we are by nature children of wrath. In other words, we come into this world deserving one thing, and that is what? Blessings? God's favor? No. We come into this world deserving of God's wrath. That's what we've earned. As um, I believe it was, um, I forget which, it was one of the Puritans, he talked about there's a sign on the doorway to hell, and it says, Deserved. So when you're walking through that, right, and you see deserve, that's what you deserve. We don't want to get what we deserve, do we? So we come into this world deserving of God's wrath. And this deadness doesn't just affect our standing before God. It also affects our capacity 
to meaningfully accept those things of God. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, kind of painting a picture here, the natural man is a guilty, helpless sinner. A guilty, helpless sinner. You know, it's one thing to be in a bad situation, but it's another thing to be in that situation and be totally helpless and unable to do anything about it. But that's where we are, apart from God. Man comes in this world in his natural state as a guilty, helpless sinner. He does not have the ability to discern and accept the things of God. Now I want you to think about that. It's important to note here that man's problem isn't an intellectual problem. It isn't that he's not smart enough to understand the things of God. It's not a problem even of the will. It's not that he is unwilling because it's he is unwilling, but why? Because he has a spiritual problem. You may recall Jesus' discussion with the Jewish leaders in John 10. After what the Jewish leaders perceived as veiled comments about, uh, by Jesus regarding whether or not he was the Messiah, they finally demand that he answer the question plainly and directly. And his response beginning in John 10 verse 25 is this. He said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you were unwilling No, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Simply put, these men were perfect examples of those Paul uh, describes in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Their lack of understanding and belief had nothing to do with their intelligence, but it had everything to do with their depravity. Notice Jesus doesn't say you're not my, sheep, not my sheep because you do not believe. That's the way we, we learn Christianity. If you, if you believe, you know, it's up to you. But that's not the problem. He says, rather, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. These men lack the capacity to truly understand and accept what Jesus has plainly said in both word and deed. Along those same lines, we are also unable to do anything good that would somehow make us righteous in God's sight. Paul drives this home in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, you've heard this many times. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Now, I know this idea of depravity is a foreign concept in an era of entitlement and self-righteousness when people tend to think that they are basically good. You know, you hear, I'm a basically good person. You heard that. That they deserve good things. 
and that all their problems are someone else's fault. That's the world we live in. But the simple reality is this. None of us deserve good things. And no person has any quality within himself that makes him acceptable in God's sight. Martin Luther put it like this. He says, The most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. So, in summing up the doctrine of total depravity, we need to remember two important points as it pertains to our relationship with God. First, we are all guilty and deserving of God's wrath. And of course, if we are deserving of God's wrath, that means we are undeserving of his blessing. Secondly, in our natural state, we are wholly incapable of doing anything to merit God's favor or to remedy our negative standing before God. And as we move on, this will set the stage to help us see the importance of the other points. Now, in closing here, I want to mention one more thing. Earlier I said that having a right understanding of total depravity is vital to rightly understanding the gospel. Well, I'd like to take it a step further. Having a right understanding understanding of depravity isn't just vital to helping us understand the gospel it's also vital to preparing us for the gospel most of you will recall these famous words from the sermon on the mount beginning in matthew matthew 5 3 jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted What do these verses mean? To be poor in spirit means to rightly recognize our depravity. It means we see ourselves in the, uh, or we see in ourselves the complete corruption of our spiritual conditions. To mourn means to experience the brokenness and sorrow that our sin and depravity should bring. Well, saints, That is exactly what is missing from much of Christianity today. I have seen this all of my life. All of my life. When a person's understanding and experience with depravity is superficial, his receiving of the gospel and his conviction of the faith or to the faith will also be superficial. Let me say that again. If our understanding of depravity is superficial, in other words, if we're not experiencing that brokenness and it's not moving us to mourn over our sin, if we're not experiencing that, then our understanding of of grace is going to be superficial. Our receiving of the gospel is going uh, going to be superficial. And the way that we live our faith is going to be superficial. Many people never experience the real joy of the gospel because they have never truly realized the depths of the curse that they are under. They have never been broken over their sin. On the other hand, when a person not only understands depravity, but when he experiences the utter despair and misery that it produces in a softened heart, when it humbles him and brings him to a place where 
he can no longer stand on his own two feet, when he realizes that his only recourse is to depend on the mercy of God, there is nothing sweeter, nothing more precious than the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. I pray that, that they would do their work. I pray that they would move us to conviction, that they would edify your church, and that they would glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.